This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2016, held at Faith Builders on August 1 through 5. We're going to go ahead and get into our last installment of Anvil work. And uh, once again, I'd like to review what we've covered so far. So, to summarize, we've begun by saying that we're Anabaptists. We teach Christ crucified, no Jesus jumping going on in our schools. We desire to have humility. I don't think you can just say we have humility. That's a process in and of itself. So we work in the meekness of wisdom. We require students to make choices. This is how we heat that knowledge up, make it possible to shape it. Another way we do this is by facilitating real-life experiences. We talked about that yesterday, how we increasingly live in a world that seems less and less real. And yet, one of the things I do want to remind you of is there's also a reality to that that is just simply part of our lives. Going back to the pioneer age is maybe not very real today. I don't know. So we have a, a, a different time and a different age, I think, uh, than our ancestors had to think about how we educate in. But we want to facilitate real-life experiences. And today I want to talk about empowering a faith that will not shrink. The Protestant Reformation gave us much of the Christianity that we have today. And even you and I have been influenced heavily by it. The, the little uh, visual that I want to show you here today is not original with me. My dad has been preaching about it lately at church. And so I'm using his visual. I didn't ask him where he got it, so I'm not sure if it's original with him or with someone else. But just saying this is not original with me. However, I'm going to add some things to it that I think connect to us as teachers. So the Protestant Reformation uh, has given us much of what we have today. And, of course, Luther is famous for saying that we are saved by faith. And then he did, uh, I think, a very important thing, or at least something that we need to be sure we recognize. He said, by faith alone, which has made a drastic difference. Uh, uh, it's quite different to say we're saved by faith and to say that we're saved by faith alone. And I think that this little chart here demonstrates something about how we as Anabaptists view this. And that is that we see it more as a process. Salvation is more, uh, more of a process. And it involves more than just, yeah, I do have it on there, blind belief, even though that is certainly a piece of salvation. We must believe things that we absolutely can't see or know concretely. That's part of what it means to be saved, but that is not all that it means to be saved. And so we have, of course, broken away from that stream, and we said there's more to it. So there's salvation, salvation there's discipleship. And then ultimately, there's maturity in Christ. And, of course, that's what we aim for. Salvation, of course, uh, is defined the way we talk about it, as being born again. It's maybe simple believing. You know, when I became a Christian, that was the moment when I said, you know, I believe that I'm a sinner and that Jesus can save me. So there was certainly an element of blind belief there that I think was important in that moment. And I think, unfortunately, this is... if if I can say this as humbly as possible, and I want you to understand that I have evangelical friends, and I, and I don't think that I am better than they are, but if there's anything that I am very disappointed in, the evangelical movement, it's that this is essentially where, uh, about as far as they've gotten with this. And that is, you're born again, you're saved, uh, Jesus has done that for you, and then that is where the process ends. And I think that we're involved in a process that's much longer than that. We believe in discipleship. So we believe in disciplines. 
I think our schools are going to reflect that. And we believe that iron sharpens iron. And so even outside of school, in our brotherhood, uh, we approach uh, discipleship with a seriousness that says, we're going to help each other. We're going to sharpen each other. I'm going to sometimes critique you. Sometimes you're going to critique me. I'm going to encourage you. You're going to encourage me. And we're going to help each other grow into Christian maturity, hopefully. And Christian maturity defining as a way of life and as an Anabaptist, a kingdom culture. And that's the things we do. That's what I spend my money on. That's what I spend my time thinking about. It's what I love. It's how we, it's how we live. It's the kingdom culture we're aiming for. And we believe that salvation involves all of those things, not just the first step. We believe in being born again. We disciple each other and we create a kingdom culture with God's help, of course. And as brothers and sisters, that's, that's our goal. Faith is not just blind belief. So the process, uh, I think this era can indicate, is we you know, head in this direction. As Christians, we mature, and, and we hopefully get to the place where our lives are even small examples of this kingdom culture, and then when we put them together, it's a greater example of the kingdom culture. However, the interesting thing about this is, I think the process can actually work the other way as well. When a child is raised in this kind of a culture, in this setting, in a kingdom culture, discipleship will happen, and I think it facilitates even being born again. And so it's, uh, this is maybe a bit of the model, as limited as it is, for where we find ourselves and why we see faith a bit different than Luther saw faith. We aren't saved by faith alone. We're saved by, obviously, the grace of God and through much more than just simple blind belief, even though that is, of course, part of it. So we teach. We discipline. That's part of why you and I are here this week, I think, is because we believe in more. And, of course, this maturity is, is uh, an intentionality and a care about what we love. And I think that, you know, your students walk into your classroom every day, and by the end of the year, you ought to have a sense for what the things are your students love. And we put energy into shaping what those things are, what the loves are, what the desires are. And that's the culture that we're talking about, the maturity. Now, so this is an example of of the church, maybe, and I'm trying to help us connect to it as teachers. I want to make it more practical for us. So I want to talk about faith. So what is faith? Let's get, let's get our hands on it a bit more. To, when, when we say that well, faith is just blind belief, it's a little hard to get your hands on blind belief. We can maybe give some examples of it, but it's hard to flesh that out. So I'm, I'm hoping to give us a sense for what we actually mean by faith and, and what that could look like in your classroom. Now that's a jump that I don't know that I've ever made before. I started studying for this talk was... Okay, what does faith look like in my classroom? Talked about it in Sunday school, we talk about it at church, but somehow, outside of a Bible class, I've never asked myself what it looks like in my classroom. And I want to spend some time doing that today. So, there's our world. That's the natural, the, the circle here that has, it says natural. That's the tangible world that you and I experience day in and day out. That's right now. We're sitting here, I can see you, you can see me. I know you exist, you know I exist because you can see me. If I weren't up here then you would probably have to have some blind belief that I exist somewhere because you would not be able to see me. So our lives are, are uh, the, the circle there on the bottom that says natural and it is an example of our lives. That's our experience that we can tangibly feel, see, touch, taste. 
And, and I'll even go as far to say our experience that maybe you cannot tangibly touch with your fingertips, but you can touch it with that feeling inside of you that, that knows that it's there, such as love. I think that I know that I love my wife in tangible ways, even though it's not a seeable thing, maybe in this moment. Now, hopefully it is a visible thing. Um, so I'm even talking about those things that we experience in this natural life that even a non-Christian will experience. But we reckon as Christians that there is more to life than that, that there is, there is something much bigger than ourselves, something much bigger than our own world, than our own universe. And we reckon that even if we can't see it, it's there. And I'm calling that the supernatural. And we always find ourselves in this juggle between saying, well, God is that. Well, but then he's also in our world as well. We see him. So God kind of seems to flip-flop back and forth between these places. And we talk about this idea of the kingdom of God. But is the kingdom of God this future reality that we can't see and know anything about right now? Or do we experience it at this moment? Where does it, where, where's the kingdom of God? And so I think we reckon that there is a great reality that is outside of our human experience in many ways. However, when we become a Christian, we begin, or we believe that we begin to experience that reality at some level. And I even would say, I would go as far to say that non-Christians experience that reality. They just don't see it. They don't recognize it, but it's there. Faith is the window by which we experience that, by which we see it and know that it's there and that it exists. And one of the ways that we can have confidence in the existence of this, of the unseen of things that are yet to come, one of the reasons we can have confidence in the future is because of faith. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, it talks about uh, apparently the ministry was getting a, a bit of a critique saying, you know, what you teach doesn't make sense. We can't see it. We can't understand it. And Paul says, if you can't understand it, it's actually the people that are lost that can't hear it. It's because they don't have this window into it. And, and so I think faith is that window that allows us to experience that which is, is separate from, from what we can touch and feel and often see with our eyes. But one way to experience that is to have blind belief. To just say, I just someone told me it's out there and so it is. And that is part of faith. Sometimes we believe things that seem impossible to believe. A bad thing happens and I say, but I know God's good because my parents ever since I was small told me that God is good. And so I'm going to blindly believe that God is good. That's a good thing. Blind belief is part of faith. However, I'd like to suggest that faith involves more than this window is more than just blind belief. I think things like prayer help us experience things outside of our own lives. When we pray to God, there's there's a recognition of a reality that is beyond what I can see right now. And maybe beyond what I can even feel right now. I think prayer is part of our faith. This is why sometimes we say things like, that is a person of great faith. Are we saying that is a person of great blind unbelief? That's not necessarily what we mean when we say that. We mean there's something to this person. Sure, that may be part of it. But there's more pieces of this person that we say, that is a person of faith. And a person of faith is someone that is very aware of, of God and what he's doing. So prayer is a part of our faith. It's a part of that window. I think believer's fellowship is a part of that. Paul says, don't forsake the gathering together because part of our faith is that we get together and when we do that, we help each other see realities that are not immediately apparent. Sometimes I have students that 
They think that being a Christian is simple between them and Jesus. And, you know, is church attendance really that important? They can do it on their own, right? Faith doesn't work that way. Part of having a deep faith is to gather together and to help each other see things that are sometimes hard to see. Nature sometimes allows us to see things that are beyond us. Surely you've laid on the ground on a starry night and looked up at those stars and said, there's something going on that is humongous. There's something going on that is much bigger than anything I can even fathom. And sometimes, suddenly it seems so big. Suddenly you see something so big that it feels like your heart's going to blow apart. Because you become aware of a reality that you can't immediately see. That's faith. Looking at the stars is part of faith. And my question for you is, what about school? Does school fit in this list? Does school belong to that body of things that help us see that which is much bigger than ourselves? To help us see realities that are not apparent to the worldly man? Is school part of our faith? So my question for you is, how is school a part of your community's faith? Obviously, I believe that school should be a piece of what we call our faith. I want to share a few verses with you. First of all, it is not wrong to work with the mind. So I began this week with a caution about knowledge and mind work, saying it tends towards something. I want to end with saying it is okay to work with the mind. It is okay to work with knowledge. And I think Scripture tells us that. However, as we've been talking about, I think if you've been paying attention for the last three days, this verse is going to make sense to you. I may not even need to say anything about it. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. We've been talking about transformation. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The will of God sometimes feels like it's that thing that's out there that we can't see and we can't know. And it's, boy, I just wish I knew what God's will was. And it says right here that when you're transformed, you do actually see and understand things that the worldly man can't see and understand, such as what God wants, what God's desires are. Another verse is this one. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Once again, from the Scripture saying, it is okay to work with the mind. In fact, we're instructed to, to take thoughts captive. So I want to talk about exercising faith. And I think there is a way to exercise faith that connects well with the school, well with your classroom, no matter what age your students are. And that is this. The imagination is the way things we can't see become concrete and real. So I can ask you, what, did you, what, what is the first thing you did when you got up this morning? I want you to think about that. What is the first thing you did when you got up this morning? And right now you're going back. To the moment when you got up and you're imagining yourself bouncing out of bed, dropping down on the floor, doing 15 push-ups, jogging over to the shower. Whatever it is you did, you're seeing it in your mind right now. That's the power of the imagination. Right now in this moment, when I ask you to make something concrete and real that we can't see right now, your imagination allows you to go back to that moment when you got up this morning. And it's a very concrete and real moment for you, even now. This morning is because your imagination allows you to see it. The imagination is a powerful thing in that way. It gives gives us ways to experience things that are difficult to see in very real and concrete ways. 
You know, one of the things that is true, I think, in church congregations, and I've experienced this in my own classroom, and I think that probably we as a group right now could experience this, is I think sometimes in worship, we find that two groups of people experience worship two completely different ways. And we ask ourselves, why? So we could sing a song. I could, I could get, we could get the hymn book out here, and we could, I could pick a song out of there, and we could sing it. And some of you would connect to that song, and you would feel things, maybe feel the presence of God and worship in some way. And some of you would sing through that song, and you probably wouldn't feel the presence of God at all. And I think in a feeling sense, that doesn't change the fact that God's presence is here, whether you felt it or didn't feel it. But some of you would feel it at different levels. And the question I've often asked myself is, why? Why would some of you feel it deeply and others little connection? I think some of it has to do with your imagination. Your ability as you sing that song to imagine something that is not immediately and tangibly put right in front of your face. Now, past experiences sometimes help our imagination. That plays a role, for sure. So maybe you have, you've had an experience in your life that makes that song really connect to you, and your imagination comes alive when you sing that song. And suddenly you feel in the presence of God, and you're worshiping in that way. I may sing the song, and my imagination just never comes alive throughout that song. I'm, have, I can't connect with anything the author said, and I'm just reading the notes and saying the words. That worship experience is going to be different for me than for you if your imagination came alive in that moment. I think imagination is an important piece of worshiping God. God calls us to use our imaginations. So even within this group, if we sang a song, there would be group one that might deeply feel the presence of God and group two that might not feel the presence much at all. This is a quote from uh, a book I think called The Devout Life, maybe, I'm not sure, Uh, But the quote I find interesting because it says, By the means of the imagination we confine our mind within the mystery on which we meditate, that it may not ramble to and fro. Speaking of distraction, when your students are distracted, that's probably just their imagination. They're probably imagining something other than what you're talking about at that moment. It says, By the means of the imagination we confine our mind within the mystery on which we meditate, that it may not ramble to and fro. Just as we shut up a bird in a cage or tie a hawk on a leash so he may rest on the hand. Suggesting that, once again, in that moment of worship, our minds often want to wonder, unless our imaginations come alive in regard to what we're singing about, speaking about, praying about, your mind is less likely to wonder in that case. The more vivid an image is, the more real it is. That's the way our imaginations work. And I bet you that you could come up front here and you could tell some stories about some times when your imagination got out of hand and was creating a very vivid image that was not helpful to you. You know, I have a friend, well, my friend's, one of my friend's mothers is, is very fearful about flying. And there might be some of you in this audience that are very fearful about flying. And, and we could ask, well, why are you afraid to get on a plane? What makes you afraid to step onto that plane? Well, most likely the reason that my friend's mother is afraid to step on the plane is because she has some knowledge on hand. She has some information on hand and knows that planes have wrecked before. And somewhere along the line, that information has really connected with her imagination. And when she steps onto that plane, she can just simply imagine that plane just going into the Hudson River or whatever it might be. That's where her imagination goes. And so she's afraid to fly on a plane. There's that information at hand. In the same breath, I love to fly. 
I also have that information on hand that planes sometimes wreck. However, I've never really sat there on the plane and spent a lot of time allowing my imagination to picture planes flying into buildings or wrecking on the runway. Those aren't good things to think about in that moment if you're about to take off sitting on a plane. I heard one guy say that's why he always sits in the back of the plane because he's never heard of of a plane backing into something. (laughs) But I try not to imagine those things in that moment. And I enjoy flying because I imagine a beautiful ride I imagine the joy of, if you're lucky enough to get a window seat, looking out and seeing enjoyable things. That's the, that's the images that are going through my mind as I get on a plane. So I enjoy riding airplanes. You know, my sister has a similar uh, thing with dogs. She was bit when she was younger. And so now I think that my sister imagines almost every dog as being a biter. And once again, I enjoy dogs. When I see a dog, my first thought is not, oh, I can just see that dog coming up and latching onto my leg. That's not the first thought that goes through my mind. I have all kinds of images and good memories of playing with dogs as a childhood, so I enjoy dogs. Not so for my sister. The first time she sees a dog, her first image that, that, you know, the first image that goes through her mind is one of probably being bit, which is why she doesn't like dogs. Our imaginations are powerful in that way, and the more vivid the image is, the more real, the more real that experience ends up becoming to you. So my question for you is this. What are we making concrete in our students' minds? You know, I don't fault a student who has a great imagination to sit in my classroom, and if I present something to that student, and I don't wake his imagination up, and he can find other things to imagine that are much more vivid than whatever I'm casting in front of him, then I think it's only natural that he's going to think about those things. So as a teacher, I have to approach this to saying, I must paint a vivid picture. If I want something to become concrete and real to my student, then I've got to paint a vivid picture. I've got to help their imagination see something clearly. You can't think without imagining. To say that you shouldn't have imagination is to say that you shouldn't think, because you can't think without an imagination. Now, does the imagination necessarily change reality at this moment? No, but it does It does create realities on one hand. So in this moment, is Jesus in this room? If I asked those of you that believe Jesus is in this room, or that the presence of God is with us to stand, I bet every one of you would stand. But do you actually, are you sure, do you feel that Jesus' presence is in this room? What is is concrete about that for you? If I want you to really believe that Jesus' presence is in this room, then we have to wake up our imaginations in a way that actually makes that a concrete reality for us, even though that is absolutely true. And if you don't wake up your imagination, I believe Jesus is still going to be in this room. But I want you to experience Jesus being in this room. And I want my students to experience things. And the only way to do that is to wake up their imagination. So I could pound my fist here and say that Jesus is in this room, and He is. That would be true. But I have to make that come alive to you. What do your students see beyond themselves? What are you doing to help your students see things that are not readily seeable? You know, it was interesting when Diana told her story yesterday about, what was his name, David? She helped him see something that was not yet a reality in his life. She said, when you get a job, what do you think your employer is going to say about things that look like you're writing? Boom, we got a little imagination coming alive, don't we? He's thinking, he's picturing himself as 20 years old, doing a job, and all of a sudden he can see it. He's saying, you know, he's not going to like that. My employer's not going to like that. Until that happens, 
you can pound your fist in that boy's face and say that his writing's got to be better, but it is not going to be a concrete reality to him because he can't see anything beyond himself in this moment. And as teachers, our job is to do that, to open our students' eyes to see more. I think that's what these verses are talking about. Our minds are transformed. They're changed. So that we can actually see. It says that you may prove. I would just say, often, you know, how do we prove things? We say, well, I saw it with my own eyes. So that we can actually see things such as the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's why we have to bring every thought captive. It says to obedience of Christ. There are things that can, you can imagine in your, in your mind that are not true. And they will create concrete realities that do not exist and are not good to have in your life. So as teachers... We want to actually spend time and put care and thought into what our students are thinking about. We want to help them imagine the right things. We want to help them take thoughts captive. You know, I'll just confess. I have this this thing in me that is, I don't know if it's like the thorn in the flesh that Paul had, that I've often wished I could get rid of. As a young person, I was infatuated with sports. And I spent a lot of time imagining myself doing things on the basketball court on the softball field, or whatever it is. I spent a lot of time doing that. You want to know something? My imagination is in an incredible rut. I don't think that I'm infatuated with sports anymore. I can still imagine myself doing things that I can't do. That's an easy thing for me to do. And I find my imagination wandering to some really embarrassing places in the middle of a boring sermon, in the middle of a boring class. And that reminder to me is good because if I can do that as someone that I think has intentionally put a lot of energy into being a person that is following Jesus and has a transformed life and has tried to take thoughts captive and I still do that, you can be guaranteed your students are going to struggle with that. That's a part of the process. And I find myself doing that. Sometimes when someone gets boring, I find my imagination that's somewhere ridiculous like a basketball court. And I tell myself, Kyle, why are you thinking about that? You don't even... You don't even do that that much anymore. It's an incredible habit of the mind. And I think that uh, the, the requirement here, once again, to bring into captivity every thought is a tremendous challenge. In other words, let your imagination be the imagination that sees and thinks Jesus. So, back to faith. Is faith just your imagination? No way. But we can't be a people of faith if, we don't have, if we're not a people that can imagine more than ourselves more than our own little worlds. And as teachers, that is a tremendous calling on our lives, I think, is to help our young people be people that have a vivid imagination and that they have taken thoughts captive and they imagine Christ, Christ crucified. And that they can see beyond their own little worlds. They can see that there is much more to this life than what is just at hand. That is part of what it means to be a people of faith. Does the school have anything to do with that? Yes, the school has a lot to do with that. We're working with young people's minds. We spend a lot of time doing that. I don't know. Some of, you, some of you lower grade teachers probably have some ideas about how you can develop creativity. Sometimes we say that. Or even just a good imagination in a child. What are the types of things that foster a healthy imagination? And as they get older, how do we teach them to take those thoughts captive and even change the pictures that they see in their minds? The realities that actually are there at some level. School has a part to play in that, just like I think looking at the stars has a part to play in our faith because we begin to see things that the worldly man can't see. That's why I want my child to go to a Christian school. shouldn't say things like that. I don't have a child, if I ever have a child. 
So, swords to plowshares. I want to leave you with a bit of hope, a bit of what I see, what is in my imagination, what I see in the future. And you know, it's why I love Teacher's Week, because I come here and I look out across that gym and I see all of you and a lot more. And granted, many of us, a few years from now, we won't be teaching. Still, there's an incredible amount of hope when I look at that crowd of people in the gym. And I begin to see things. And I can't help myself. I begin to see plows. Talked about that earlier. I begin to see a field that not only, not only do I see plows, I begin to see a field that is plowed. And as this group of people right here walked into our classrooms this year, you actually have a tremendous potential to turn your students into people that can plow in a field like this. And of course, remind ourselves that I don't want to puff you up. And we've talked about that earlier, so I don't want to get caught up on this. But you're not the only player in that. The church is, God is, the Spirit is. But you have a piece to play in that process of turning knowledge to wisdom, of turning swords into plowshares, so that we can do things like this. And I actually see that. As much as sometimes you know, I find myself being discouraged about this age when I think about whatever it is, the technologies or the things that seem to scare us and make us afraid, you know, we're told that we weren't given a spirit of fear. And I can honestly stand before you today and say that I actually have hope about tomorrow. I see things in the future that are not just negative. I see beautiful things in the future. And I think Jesus has promised, us, promised that to us. I think that's the promise of the kingdom. And I hope that in your classroom, whatever you do with your students, that you begin to paint some pictures and you help them to begin to imagination a future that is hard to see in this world of Trump and Hillary and whatnot. It can sometimes be difficult to see. But we can begin to help them to imagine something much bigger than that, much more beautiful, kingdom of God. And I'll even go as far as to say, I see a plowed field, I see a tremendous harvest. And, you know, yeah, I get discouraged. Sometimes it's difficult to imagine this, but it's a reality because we've been told it is. We have to blindly believe it's a reality, but we have to also imagine that it's a reality and begin to see it in concrete and real ways and say it is and it will be. I truly believe there will be a tremendous harvest. I want to pray with you before I turn the time over to Howard. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you. For your kingdom and God, above all, I thank you that it's not something that you just kept for yourself, but something that you want us to be a part of. And it is a beautiful thing. I see it in these people in front of me, God. And I just pray that you would you would grow it. I just ask that we could come before you as servants in this coming school year and be tools, God. Help us to be tools, not weapons. Help us to train our students to be tools and not weapons. And God, we ask for your spirit. We know we can't do this alone. We can have faith. We can have belief. But God, you do have to really exist. And you have to really be there for that to have any impact. And so God, I pray that you would empower our faith. Give us a faith that will not shrink, but will grow. And God, we praise you and glorify you for allowing us to be part of the harvest. We ask these things in your name. Amen. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.